0: Right. Rachel will be joined by co-founder and chief strategy officer of SATVA, uh, Ricky Joshi, who's from the class of 1997, if you want to come on Ricky. We also have the co-founder and president of Jowell Ryan Williams, from the class of 2008. But I have no doubt that our uh, moderator is going to do a fantastic job because I know her well and her voice is a bit louder than mine. Um, we also have Chelsea Clements, who is Website Performance Marketing Manager for Green Growth Brands and from the class of 2005.
1: Hello. Like all my time at Academy, I'm winging this tonight, so i so excited, everyone. Okay, well, I'm super excited to moderate my first panel. I've seen a ton of these at all the conferences that we all probably have gone to, but first time moderating, so bear with me. Um, we are going to keep questions for the end. I'm sure you'll have some, because we have some very fascinating panels tonight. Um, but we're just going to go through and quickly introduce ourselves, give our current title where we work,
0: and summarize what you do in two sentences.
2: If you'd like to start down there. I'm sure, please. Uh, I'll start and I apologize in advance. Uh, my voice has been cracking when I've been in the in the cafeteria, which I think is just reliving my academy days. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, my name is Ryan Williams, I'm in class of 2008, and I'm the co-founder and president of a company called JobWell, which is a career advancement platform for people of color, so black and Native American students and professionals, connecting them with job opportunities at companies that historically have struggled to access and, and recruit and hire diverse talent, but who Understand that they can help to move their companies forward. Really excited to be here. So many familiar faces, it's it's, it's exciting to see everyone. I think you guys probably heard
3: enough about
4: what I do. (laughs) Hi, Ricky Joshi, uh, class 97, uh, co founder and chief strategy officer, now was chief marketing officer, kind of changed my role uh, of SATPA, or one of the larger uh, direct to consumer mattress disruptors. Uh, I I don't know if anyone's really followed the Mappers space, we were the first ones in it. Now it's apparently cool to run a Mappers company, (laughs) Uh, so I guess I'm going on something. Um, But uh, anyway, happy to be here as well.
1: I have my own microphone because I'm fancy. Um, I'm Chelsea Clements. I have a strange title, but basically I'm e-commerce and digital strategy for a company. I think the, the PR version of our description is where a a uh, consumer lifestyle product company that supports wellness and happiness but i work for a cannabis company so uh yeah nationwide uh dispensaries and online and wholesale business for both thc and cbd so yeah that's new i'm getting used to my pitch for that um, so something that's very interesting before we dive into the questions is our panelists come from very diverse uh, size companies here. So I think through the lens of these questions, we're going to have some very uh, diverse answers, and maybe we'll be able to dig into a couple specific use cases. So it'll be fun. But um, we'll start down with you, Ryan. But um, you know, how did you get into a digital-first business, and how did Academy help you get there?
2: I, I think the digital-first piece was, uh, as I'm sure some people in the room understand, I. I Looking around your your employer and not seeing people who look like you can be a very disheartening experience. So, for my co-founder and myself, we started our careers working at Goldman Sachs on the trading floor. And the trading floor of 700 people, we'd look around and we were two of maybe three or four black people on the entire trading floor. And so, you know, when the diversity recruiters would come and tap us on the shoulder and say, like, hey, you guys are black, help us find some black people to work here. Uh, we, we thought it was super inefficient and awkward and it's just, like, uncomfortable. that <laughs> they would ask us to do this when our day jobs were to be in the markets. And so, for us, digital first was, was the obvious solution, if the alternative was shoulder taps in the day to, uh, to find friends. And so we decided to start a business that really sat in the middle between these historically separate communities, and really disintermediate, um, uh, what historically have been the, the, the routes for access to, to employers. But I think what Academy has done, it, from the perspective of being an entrepreneur, entrepreneur in a fairly early stage business, you are doing everything, wearing old hats, you are marketing, sales, finance, accounting, every element of the business. And I, and I remember reflecting back on, on when I was in Academy and, and sort of having the classes that I really loved and, and kind of took to, and wondering, why can't I just do this only? Why can't it just be like econ and math and science? Um, But I think reflecting back, it was that more well-rounded experience that all the different areas of of sort of expertise, perspective, and knowledge that come into play when you're a founder of a company. So for me, that was a critical part of that journey. So for me, when I was getting towards the end of college, I started to realize that marketing
3: was actually the perfect Practical application of creative ideas. And I knew there were a lot of different ways that creative creativity and visual arts could be done, including with Lori Clemens, Chelsea's mom, who's back there and was my sponsor for my senior project here. Um, but the thing that really spoke to me was the business side of it. And so when I first took a role at Ogilvy in New York in 2005, it was already very much a time when digital was well underway in marketing and advertising. But it wasn't so underway that our clients fully understood it or knew what to do in order to optimize their programs. So they hired us as their consultants to help explain and and get them going and um, do different types of projects. So as a result, digital was always something that I worked on. And then as I've (coughs) taken roles later on, it's been, it's just always been digital e-commerce and marketing content rewards, etc. it's just the way that people want to interact with brands and the way that customers want their companies to communicate with them. So I would say it's it was almost a foregone conclusion to work in a digital first business and pretty much all businesses now do have that lens to them. Um, in terms of how Academy helped get me into digital first business, I would say similar to what you said, um, the variety of classes that I took at Academy was really important. So I loved painting and drawing and the arts. And so while I was taking difficult math and science and history and all those types of things that you would normally expect, I spent almost every day painting and taking classes with Mr. Block. And I think that's pretty unique to be able to take that much time for the arts that young in your life. And what it made me realize was that it was something I really wanted to continue doing in my professional career is to have a job that may be close to the creative side of the business and um, where I work side by side with graphic designers, UX UI professionals, copywriters, etc. And I'm not one of them now, but I appreciate what they do and I kind of serve as that translation person to help make sure that that is carried through to help the business um, deliver what we need to deliver.
1: Yeah, Ricky, I'm interested to hear yours because, you know, I don't think Mattresses and digital, I feel like that's very analog experience. So tell us your perspective.. I
4: tell anything. <laughs> um, actually, it's interesting. I, I think my my most sort of uh, I guess formative moments at Academy in terms of getting into digital were actually uh, non-academic. Um, I was I remember running for a service club in ninth grade and not getting elected in senior year. I was president. Um, and uh, also was really, really, you know, we Mrs. Benning here, um, you know, we started a Habitat for Humanity chapter and took something that was relatively dormant and made something real out of it. I think that kind of instilled a little bit of confidence that, you know, I could go out there, um, surmount a challenge, uh, lead a team and really build something. So I failed about 10 times uh, after that, um, starting in college. Uh, my first company was a digital first business, yeah, failed. Um, every time I'd make money at a job, I would I'd run out and try to do something on the side, work late nights and weekends. Um, eventually, did start a successful agency, uh, which led to me trying a bunch of different things in e-commerce. Uh, long story, but mattresses was something that I just identified as an opportunity. Uh, and that's where the academics had actually came in. Um, I realized to really execute in this, this area, I needed to be Google AdWords trained uh, and certified, so I, I got myself certified in AdWords. Uh, started, you know, working with um, internet marketing type clients uh, and then kind of jumped into this mattress thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like you said, he was there before Casper and Lisa and all those other ones. So, how has the digital space uh, changed since you first entered the workplace? Uh,
4: so, just, uh, I think that, you know, digital is so dynamic. I think what I love the most about it, um, you know, is you're never ever uh, at a place where you can really feel comfortable. It's not something that you're trained in and all of a sudden, you know, two years in the future, um, you know, it's going to be static and the same. Every tech company is innovating, particularly as an internet marketer. Um, you know, Google is, is constantly, you know, adding new technology and being sort of ahead of, of a lot of technology comes that, that comes out or being able to be nimble and embrace new technologies and work through technologies and, and, and make things work, I think, makes it. Really, really exciting for me. Um, and I think that kind of is is, is sort of the, the the whole beat behind digital. In many, in many ways, is uh, it, you're almost an innovator in your own right. So you're, you're taking the best of what other people are creating, but you're sort of fitting um, that that technology into into a purpose where you can use it the best. And so I find it to be um, very exciting in that way.
3: So for me. How digital has changed. When I joined City, I was getting ready to start, and I spoke with my the person who's going to be my manager two couple days before, and said, "What do I need to know? And what time? Where do you want me to meet you?" He said, "Oh yeah, by the way, something important happened today. A memo went out. We're establishing this fintech unit, and I think that we're all going to be moved into it." So. Probably when you show up, you already will be in the midst of a rewrite. I was like, oh, great, I don't really know what this thing is. I actually think I wrote down the wrong word and didn't even write down FinTech, I misheard it. So I showed up and what had happened was our CEO, um, Stephen Bird, had said, had come out and said that he wanted City to be a global first business. And for a bank, that was pretty unheard of because banks like our main competitors, which are Bank of America and Chase and Wells Fargo have hundreds of thousands of branches, not hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of branches in the United States. And it's really dominant to be able to walk into a branch and expect that you can have your needs served in that way. So to come out and say we're not going to invest in our physical footprint, and now we're only at 700 branches in the US, meant that the entire company had to reinvent itself and figure out how we were going to serve our customers and not lose them all, by not having the space. So what that meant is lots of hiring and lots of activity and lots of trying to figure out what we were gonna do with digital and mobile. And we got to a place where we realized our mobile experience had to be more comprehensive than pretty much every other experience. So how many features can you pack into a screen that's this big without having people not be able to find what they're trying to, to do and then call, or get so frustrated that they're fed up, how do you kind of balance all of those things? And it was a really unique challenge to try to make it an inclusive experience. And now we're three and a half, four years later into that journey, and we're having the fastest year-over-year global growth, which is 25%. We don't have the largest mobile base because we still have um, more of a presence globally than in the US versus Chase, et cetera. But the fact that we made sort of that bold stand and then uh, changed our business model and changed the way that we work in order to support that I, I thought was really an uh, amazing time to be part of that, that particular uh, company and that industry.
1: Yeah, and Ryan, didn't,
3: you, didn't your company start something with stock photography and,
1: and this started part of a college project? Yeah talk, yeah, talk about that and how it morphed into what it is. Absolutely, and I think it
2: ties into the original question surrounding like the digital space changing. I think in our, in our lens of, of diversity and inclusion, companies have increasingly been realizing that in order to be innovative, in order to produce products that are speaking to a changing globe, consumers, customers, etc., who are looking different, whose purchasing power is fundamentally changing, um, that they need to be a place of work that's compelling for that audience. And, and, and one big piece of representing a workplace or a professional environment, frankly, is stock photography. And if you've seen stock photography, it's usually white males or, or perhaps there's a little bit more gender diversity than that, but it isn't representative of what the modern um, professional workspace looks like. So we started a, an effort um, of, of creating our own stock photography of a much more colorful, frankly, um, audience of professionals or students. And we created this library and just put it up and you know, had like 12 million downloads in a very short period of time. Uh, another one that we did was with the PGA. Diversifying the game of golf was an important uh, was an important uh, kind of initiative for them, which is timely given the Tigers uh, triumph. But um, th- they were really thinking, how can we make the game itself be more representative of the country? And so we did a stock photography shoot with them to show here are black and Latin and Native American golfers. This sport does include you. And so I think it's just really, exciting and kind of humbling to see the way that brands recognize what they're putting out there, what they're using digitally, even imagery, can really change the way the brand's perceived. Yeah, one, one more thing I was just sort of thinking as uh, I was talking,
4: uh, you know, I think one big difference actually between now and, and, and kind of late 90s and early 2000s is there are so many tools out there that are free um, that, you know, you can get for 39 bucks a month. Um, you know what? What used to be so impossible. You start, you know, I remember. I don't know if you guys remember in the, the late '90s, when companies were rate tens of millions of dollars to just launch a website or a product. Now you can do that, kind of. You know, in 10th grade, and, and you know, at home on the weekends. And I think that's really sort of um, it could put a level playing field uh, in many ways around disruption, and, and really made it a lot easier for for entrepreneurs um, to kind of come out there and, and, and do really impressive things uh, a lot faster. So I think the whole ecosystem is kind of building upon itself.
1: You really just my next question very well. So with the broader landscape changing, how is this changing how you're doing business, all well, the change in digital?
4: Um, you know, I, I think that in general, you know, AI is, is huge for us, so but we're, we're, we're hyper-specialized. So, as I said, we, you know, we use a lot of, you know, marketing technology, etc. cetera. But um, I think that that's definitely something that has made uh, the way that you operate differently. And just in the last few years of doing this, we used to do things a lot more manually. Um, and now we can kind of press buttons to take care of things that uh, might have been just a lot more difficult, which makes us just able to do other things. Um, So instead of spending, you know, and paying someone to monitor individual ads for like in the long tail, not getting too esoteric about this. I can just say, okay, you know what? We're not going to worry about that. We're going to kind of let that automate itself to some degree, focus on the things that matter and move on to the next big project.
3: For us, the way the landscape is changing is pretty much everything we do. So my team is expected to know what global trends are happening and then understand how that's gonna impact our customers of today, but also how can we anticipate the needs of what they're gonna have in the future that they don't even know about yet. So I would say it's completely wrapped up and I could go in a monologue about it, I'll try not to. Um, But I mentioned before that our competitors, and I mentioned a couple of the big banks, but the reality is when we are talking about the landscape, we're actually not usually talking about those big banks. Yes, we're interested in some things that are happening, what we can learn from them, and track and share, things like that. But the FinTechs, the startups, and big tech firms like Apple, and Google, and Amazon, that's really where we are focused today. And it's not that we're focused on on one group and, and not the other two, but really, if we want to be around for the next 200 years, which city is a 200 year old company, then we're not gonna be able to do business and traditional banking the way we do today. So we know that, we are not resting on our laurels, just expecting that a huge brand name and an old company and 300,000 people are, are gonna keep going. So I love that because I think that's sort of that competitive spirit and how do we really take it seriously and we're not just saying, oh, it's a startup, they only have Three hundred thousand users, or something like that. It's it's about what can we learn from point solutions, and what can we learn from how this is ultimately going to affect how we need to think about going to market with our customers.
2: I think an observation that we have on the um, the hiring landscape, recruitment, it just careers, uh, the software, and the experiences and platforms that are built around that, uh, built around those critical elements of life, are pretty outdated and, and old school. Like it feels like the HR space, or HR tech specifically, was one of the last to really have like this revolution of startups and presumably because it's not the sexiest down the space. It was sexy to us. HSM. Yeah, fair, fair. Um, yeah, definitely historically less investment, but but we are students in this game, certainly, but what we're finding that's fascinating, not just as it pertains to people of color, but in general with recruitment, is the extent to which through AI and machine learning, you can be servicing jobs or roles or opportunities, et cetera, as individuals, they never would have raised their hands for without even understanding why they're afraid, frankly, or them uh, suggesting that they would be interested. And the extent to which that's changing the recruitment process and changing internal mobility, certainly for people who historically have not had a seat at the table, but also just more, more broadly in the landscape has been fascinating. Companies doing away with, with interviews altogether, companies moving to video interviews, companies doing away with with resume screens, companies doing gamified assessments where you literally play with with... Basically these kind of modules that test various elements of your competencies on a cognitive level and then recommend careers or specific jobs to you. It's a remarkable time to be um, to be in that space and so that's been really encouraging to see because it's directly helping to lift the community that we're serving. I'm going to skip around here
1: because you're just eating into something. of. Like, what constitutes success in your business, or what story or of success are you most proud of specifically? You know, we just have a very interesting use case amongst the panelists up here.
2: Um, so, you, you prompted us earlier to sort of introduce the size of our business into, into the conversation. So, I'll reflect back on um, we went through an accelerator program called y Combinator, which is sort of an incubator for startups and uh, co- connects you to the Silicon Valley ecosystem. One uh, sort of piece of motivation, success story, when, early win that we celebrated was, it was the nine of us uh, working for the company, living together in a house. It was like the show Silicon Valley, if you've watched it. Um, that show is like, gives me PTSD. But it, um, we were living together in this house, and we had a candidate who was a first generation college, college student. Uh, her mother, her, both of her parents were from West Africa. She lived with her, her mother in New York City. She somehow sort of you know clawed and, and, and scraped her way to Princeton, but had no exposure to the technology industry. And a, a company who we were partnered with at the time, I think it was Square, uh, had an opportunity uh, for a, sort of an internship for graduates. She truly had no background, was like a guitarist, might have been a music major at Princeton. Uh, but she found through our platform this job at Square, this internship which became a job. And then she came to our house with cookies for the team. So that, I guess selfishly that was a huge win that we celebrated because it was, it was a, 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 a true perk. But I think what that represented for us was that it brought uh, what is this digital experience and we have tens of thousands of candidates connecting with opportunities into a very personalized story of one person who came to our home and gave us cookies and told us how she was imagining the future generations or like her parents cried when she got the job offer and now she's imagining how her kids' lives would be different. So I think for us it's really about thinking about the multi-generational economic impact that hopefully can have ripple effects for communities.
3: Marshall, what does success look like for you? Uh, at work, we I'd say for the past couple years, success has been about launching into market. So how many features, how many experiences, what types of experience, how fast can we do it, how can we take traditional development cycles that are 40 months and shrink it down to nine months. Things like this were really, really big when I first started and no one believed that we were gonna launch the first MVP we did, which is Minimal Viable Product. Um, at the end of 2016, and we did, and then everyone's like, oh, geez, this this team is, is still going. I guess we'll, we'll keep investing in them. So that was big, but now I think we've actually started pivoting to a place where success sometimes looks like what we're not going to release. And I say that because it means that we are actually testing things earlier with less resources, fewer dollars, less money in market, and it means that we are going to save from scaled decisions that will ultimately not work out. So I love the fact that now we can get into market faster and do smaller controlled tests, like the Canvas community, which is our beta community. Um, we do many, many, many tests. Every single day there's some sort of test going on, which just means that we can save from failures. We can fail earlier, other than that. There, there was one case last year where um, we talked about launching a sub-brand or Rather than going with the master brand, and there was a calculation that it would would have been over two hundred million dollars extra if we had chosen to go with the the other brand. So something like that, where you can use research and data to make a decision, was has been really powerful and something that's successful and rewarding for the team.
4: Um, So we're always looking at numbers, and that's our guiding (laughs) force. You know, like okay, great, and and actually the the number story has been really interesting. You know, I think when we sold our first. Non, or we had a second random leaf, and just kind of all of a sudden, you see on your phone that people are actually buying this thing. Um, you're like, really? <laughs> um, but I, I think, actually, to be honest, has been uh, just for me personally, um, the way we built our team. Uh, you know, uh, my personal, probably 15 or 20 people I've hired. Uh, I think one has left. Um, you know, a couple have started off as interns so who are now vice presidents. Um, I think we've done just an amazing job of finding great people. Um, and and finding them in, in crazy ways, um, and I, I actually didn't say this, but I met one at a bachelor party. Um, apparently, he was really great at paid search, and you know, I kept on him, and next thing you know, you know, Mike's our VP of of uh, <laughs> paid marketing. Um, and uh, but 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 really, I think the, the talent retention, um, creating a, a workplace where people want to stay, where they feel it's a meritocracy, where where you're inspiring them. Uh, where they know that you have their back um, and that you know your loyalty to them is beyond just uh, just just one conversation it's that you really truly deeply get uh, where they want to go in their careers and you're you're there for them I think has been uh, probably my most rewarding thing um, doing this so in offering
1: what you want to offer wait let me start over when determining what you want to offer customers you know mattress space start to consumer um, you could expand into other parts, complementary parts of the business. How do you determine what you guys offer your customers? I mean, you're probably very, very heavy data analytics driven, um, but what other factors come to play?
4: You know, I think there's a brand fit at uh, first off, so you have to create filters. So, you know, we have certain things that we're, we're not gonna do, um, and there we have certain things we will do. Um, you know, we really do have a data-driven approach. There are things that we can upsell to our current customer base. So we want to create a, in general, we want to create a higher lifetime average value of customer. That's a goal for us. So uh, when you buy our mattress, we want you to buy our sheets, we want you to buy our pillows, we want you to buy our pillow spray. That's all stuff that that we will, we started to do, we will do. Um, We also want to have the broadest possible reach in terms of product. So we want to be in every mattress vertical we possibly can. Um, We want to then, You know, I think another thing is we've become a little channel agnostic as time has gone on, which means, you know, digital is our only thing. So we're actually launching about 20 stores in the next two years, uh, which I'll be sort of managing and running. And that's also built on a lot of data. Uh, So data guides, you know, data guides a lot of our decision making. We have our filters as long as you're brand authentic, as long as you're, um, you know, Makes sense. We're not just doing something for, for a quick buck. We're really adding to the long term value and sustainability of the company. Um, that's how we do it.
1: How many brick and mortar stores do you have now?
4: Uh, zero. Our first one's launching in New York City at 57th and 3rd uh, at the end of August.
1: And is it more of a showroom or?
4: Uh, so, so the digital, it's kind of interesting. We have a, 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 almost like a digital type of approach towards retail, so if you go to Easton, you'll see there are, there are actually a lot of digitally native brands now, so you'll see like Pelotons there, uh, Indochino, um, you know, Chinola, a ton of them. Um, and so it's, it's it's kind of similar. So it's it's almost like a, a, an omni channel type of approach. I'm getting, sorry. We're getting <laughs> okay, okay, a little too deep in this. We're, we're just, you know, we're efficient. We don't carry a lot of inventory. Uh, we're really transparent with the customer. You know, you buy off an iPad, um, things like that.
1: What was the deciding point to say, you know what, I'm going to open brick and mortar?
4: You know, at the end of the day, we realized that. The same way that we're really efficient online, we can be really efficient offline. And there are just certain places that just make a lot of sense. Also just, you know, we're not the first ones to do this. Other companies, kind of similar to ours that have launched uh, launched a brick and mortar store have also seen their e-commerce sales go up because you essentially create sort of a brand identity and word of mouth uh, within that specific market. So uh, there were a number of really nerdy reasons to do this. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk later. We'll get into it.
3: What we decide to offer to our customers, um, a lot of it's already out there. We offer hundreds of different products, um, but when we are launching new products and features, everything is co-created with our customers. So when I say co-created, what it means is we are involving our customers or our potential customers in the entire product development process. So from the point where we have an idea or we say we think that we might have something there or we wonder if anyone's interested in this at all, We will start to float that concept in front of people. And a lot of it's digital, it was how we do it. So we have different communities, um, 18 different communities that we manage that allow us to connect with our customers pretty much 24 7. Um, Unfortunately, 24 7 sometimes means that people don't realize that they're sitting in their bed having a conversation with someone. company headquarters or something like this. But regardless, we have the opportunity to really go out and connect with our customers and understand what they need, what they want, what's not working well, and then what we should start to deliver. So we do, we create prototypes, we have lo-fi prototypes, we have working prototypes, we have a whole prototyping team, and then we are taking those sample experiences, putting them in front of people and asking them for honest feedback to try to understand how we can optimize that. We will go through that process the entire journey from when we say, "What should we do? What is the problem? How should we go about solving it? What should it look like?" And then, did it work? So every single one of those stages, we have the um, luxury of being able to interact with a lot of customers. So since two thousand sixteen, we have co-created with seventy two thousand um, customers, which means that's around one hundred forty people per day, and it's really great because what it means is when people, executives, have personal decision, personal points of view, and say, I really think we should do this campaign and we should do it all on Yahoo. And everyone's sort of like, oh my gosh, no. Why have we do that? (laughs) Um, Then we can actually just get some data and talk to where people are, we can understand what people's different usages, usages, their perceptions, their um, reactions, and take that conversation from a personal point of view to something that's much more data-based and neutral and we then get to present it in a way that feels very objective to help make the decision. So we try to represent the customer in that experience so that by the time we do go to market, we are actually creating and spending time on things people need and want and not on things that some random person decided they needed or wanted and no one else needed.
1: How many people are on your team, Rachel, and that are touching all these aspects of testing and customer touch points? And
3: it seems like a lot. Um. It depends. We have um, we have the internal direct team, that like direct reporting. We also have a couple of different agencies, about 10 different agencies, and um, software partners that we use. So we rely on a lot of different software partners to help us execute. So probably between all the teams, it's maybe 80 to 100. And then the broader design teams, another 150 or so, globally. All right. Mr. Yu, down there um
2: i i think on our end, it's interesting seeing the evolution of how we choose what products and offerings to build the initial impetus for starting the company was we've had this very specific experience as black males working in a you know industry that doesn't look like us so we were we thought at the time all of our intuition and experiences we'll just build exactly that we'll build what we would be consumers of that doesn't exist and that worked initially and that sort of like got some initial traction and found people who who had backgrounds similar to ours, although we didn't really acknowledge this at the time. But then as we grew, we recognized very quickly that the, the intersectionality of the different stakeholders who would need to be our customers or our candidates on our platform if our business were to grow. And we started having to, to, to do a process that was a lot more agile and, and involved the actual candidates or sample candidates in the design process. So we used the Google Design Sprint methodology to sit down starting with like a core problem that you're working towards and then in a week having actual working prototype out to market and, and, and sort of iterating and finally building what the customer is telling you and it actually is wanting as opposed to what we think because we would be customers we would want. And I think the, a good manifestation of why that agility, bring it back again to being a small startup, we're a team of about 50, uh, why that agility is critical is, without naming them the most obvious, you know, the recruitment platform that's out there, the professional network, 600 million people on their platform, and yet they're a customer of ours. And I think that's a pretty compelling case study for our ability to move very quickly in building something that our unique uh, customers stakeholders want is why they need to come to us and say the other way around
1: so what's your balance between the other tech platforms the uh, companies in which you're connecting candidates for and the candidates themselves what's the balance and decisions there for what you guys produce
2: tricky question let's say yeah uh, we had a board meeting on Monday and I, they asked the same question um, <laughs> No, I think it's a constant balancing act. At the beginning, we try to try to seesaw. We'll start with the candidate experience. We'll build something that's great for the job seeker, and if it engages them, we'll swing the pendulum back and start building out a platform for companies. I think over time, we realized that we had to actually be addressing all of the needs simultaneously, and our guiding principles are really just the core values of the business. So we have, you know, principles that the candidates are our family. It's, to treat them like a family, to love every user is literally a value of our business. And we started building more, or focusing more of our attention rather on the candidates and the experience that they'll have uh, as the guiding principle, while still, of course, building uh, out for our companies, recognizing that that would sort of uh, move the bottom line and create like, engaged and happy users.
1: So, what are the daily challenges, the toughest part of your day? I mean, y'all you, you are very,
2: this is going to be a good one, let's just buckle in, all right, go. I, I think, uh, I, again, sort of catering to the stage of the business, I think the hardest thing for us, and I'm speaking for my co-founder and, my, and myself, perhaps as a nudge to him, because I think he's also, you know, struggles with this. we have a hard time giving up things that we have owned to new stakeholders. So when you're two people in a WeWork space and then growing to you know, 50 people, soon to be 60 people, the degree of delegation uh, becomes intense. But, but effectively, we try to remind ourselves every day, the goal is to own something until we have to fire ourselves and replace ourselves with somebody who can do it better than us. And so I think what I struggle most with is giving up, you know, the company, it feels like my baby, but the little elements of the company that I dedicate all of my time and energy in, nights and weekends for six months, And then, frankly, somebody needs to kind of outgrow my abilities. That, I think, is the single thing that I find most challenging, knowing when it's right to say we should bring others in to own this and to kind of run with it from here.
3: I think for us, it's speed. Um, The challenge for me, I love doing things fast and moving quickly and just taking action on things rather than belaboring and doing like the analysis paralysis stuff. I, I don't know why, because I'm... It does, probably for my family, they probably are surprised by that. Um, But in general, we have the ability to move really fast in our team, in our unit, um, which is the FinTech unit, and it is comprised of people who are very, who are sort of challengers and want to do things differently and not follow the same processes that we've always followed and skip the committees and try to get around the decisions and things like that. So we try to move really fast, but we're still a company of 300,000 people. And so a lot of times the analogy that's used is the speedboat pulling the Queen Mary. And we can move really fast within ourselves, but it would be completely ridiculous to think that we wouldn't be able to work with the rest of the bank to be able to get what we want executed. So there's so many different things, including governance and risk and info security and compliance and legal and I mean all of these teams, these teams are not motivated to move quickly. These teams are motivated to like to analyze and look at every word and take three months to make a document to, to re- revise a privacy policy and then you ask them to do it again. They're like, oh, I'm a little lazy. I might just retire before that happens. So, I mean, we're, we're dealing with, we're really at odds with people um, in terms of the speed. And so, you know, it's, it's about kind of bringing people along and making them feel the energy of it and trying to not step on their toes too much while we're trying to actually move a lot more quickly.
4: Uh, for us, it's actually been, so, so I, I couldn't. Sort of uh, relate more to, to both those, to both those areas. Um, I think as a as a founder, you end up uh, in in situations where um, you really do have to give up things. You can't you can't create this huge company with four people. Um, and and it was a lot of fun having four or five or ten people. But um, you get to a level where you just really really have to let everyone get in their own swim lane and run. And uh, also. Um, part of the frustration with other people is they might be slower than you it used to be. And you used to not have to ask for permission and now, you know, permission is probably important. Um, as part of a process that now we also have. <laughs> but uh, So I think, that's, I think that's just, you know, I think that's, that's a reality almost everywhere. Um, competition has been something that we've really had to face a lot of. We were the first ones in this space. Uh, you know, luckily we're different from others in our category. So we're distinct. We're not a mattress and box, being you know, our, our space very well. We're a, we're in home installation and removal it allows us to have a different type of product. But sometimes articulating that to the consumer um, has been tough, particularly when, you know, a new brand will come up with nothing to lose and just sort of start maybe just saying things that might not necessarily be true. Um, so I think just having to have like, like, like almost a marathon pace. Uh, be above the fray, um, really just, you know, s- just, just just pitch your value proposition, be, be, the, be the strongest and most confident guys in the room who really aren't willing to kind of be, you know, to dive into that deep mess. I think it's been, a, it's been an interesting lesson. It's been frustrating at times, but, uh, you know, I'm really happy where we are today.
1: Ricky, as you guys are continuing to grow um, and opening brick & Mortar, are you guys able to remain as nimble as you once were?
4: Yeah. so I think nimbleness is, is, is definitely a huge thing. Um, so I, I think that one, I think it, my philosophy has been kind of been be distilled to a few different things. Uh, one 80, 20 rule has been something that I've sort of followed from the beginning. Um, you know, 20% of the effort for 80% of the, of the results, anything sort of too far above that, you end up being a little too focused on perfection and, and you don't get on to the next project, what might, what might be 10 times bigger than the, the previous project. Um, testing and experimentation, uh, what I love about today is everything can be tested. Um, that wasn't the case, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, so there was a lot of intuition-based decision making, you know, 30 years ago. Now we have the benefit of a lot of data, a lot of information that we then get to uh, make decisions off of. And and, and as you know, what, sometimes the tests aren't even constructed the right way. So it's not like intuition isn't even part of this. I remember there was one test that was performed by one of our engineers, and I'm just like. Oh my God! Well, the, the, the test was designed to lose. Um, so sometimes we have to walk in and make sure those things, you know, the tests are constructed the right way. But at least we can we have that type of data uh, today. Um, What's the question?
1: If <laughs> <laughs> you were able, to remain nimble.
4: <laughs> so so I think as we've gotten bigger, uh, we really we really I think I think you just you have to kind of continue to advocate for for a certain type of approach. Um, you bring that approach to, to meetings. You hope that the people that you bring on, I think it, it really does come down to people eventually. Um, you really hope the people that come on understand sort of the way that you'd like to do things. And uh, I think that's how you stay nimble. You, you bring on people who understand what being nimble means.
1: I don't know how nimble you can be with uh, with all of your compliance and, and speed and, and everything. But I think there- there's a lot of gray area and you have to understand
3: the gray area and also the what we have found is the more we understand the actual policies, like really reading the policies, so that we can then challenge the policies better, it's almost like being a lawyer without being a lawyer. So we are trying to understand the contracts and everything that's happening so that we can then push back and say, well, that's actually not what they said, or can we do it this way? Or A lot of times it's around global, frankly, so we have, um, a vendor or partner we want to work with and we only have a master service agreement to work with them in one one area or one way and we want to use it a different way and it's going to be an eight-month process to try to get them approved for a different way and it, the whole thing just becomes this really complex and time-consuming process. So we try to meet them with, with knowledge. You were talking about global
1: trends earlier in banking. Is there anything that would surprise us in global trends that have not hit the U.S.?
3: Oh, well, APAC is so far ahead. I mean, that's the biggest thing that we talk about. So um, we have 18 markets in APAC and EMEA and Singapore and Hong Kong and India and all of those countries are just so far ahead in terms of digital. And they're not necessarily ahead in terms of how they're doing digital and being customer-centric in And using customer needs and customer perceptions to be able to make the decisions are still very top-down and um, pretty hierarchical offices. But the way that they are, the way that the life in APAC is, is currently cashless, and how they're using technology is just far beyond where we are in the US. I mean, if we're we're probably, I think, 10th or 11th in terms of cashless societies. Sweden's number one, and we are so far, far from being a cashless society compared to some of these other markets. So we, the other markets, like in, in, um, in APAC, have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder because they don't want the people from headquarters in New York to just come in and tell them what to do, like think that they know everything. And we have to, Overindex index on that a bit to make sure that we are really learning from them because they are further ahead in some ways. Mexico is the other market um, where we have a huge presence and they are in a completely different worlds. So Mexico, they are still just trying to get people to use mobile and not go into branches to check their balances and things like that. They are so, so much more basic in terms of their financial needs. So it's a little bit tough sometimes to try and find those common points of in intersection across the different markets, but usually US and APAC are closer together and we try to work together and not do things multiple times, but do it in a way where we're learning from each other and, and building different parts of an experience and then only having to refactor a little bit to tailor to the individual market, rather than if you build an entire set of code in the US and then you say, okay, well now APAC's gonna build it their own mobile app and they're gonna build all these same features with all the same set of cost and level of effort, it's, it's really wasteful to be a global company like that, so it doesn't make for very fun evenings and early mornings like last night when I had to be on a call at 9.45, but it's, it is cool and, and good to be able to, to have that type of um, lens on, on what we're doing. And
1: Ryan, what would surprise us about your job in your industry? Give us, drop some knowledge bombs that would, that would take us back.
2: Great. Yeah. Thanks. Um, no, no pressure. Um, well, no. I think this. I don't know if this would surprise this audience, just given the relative differences in size of, of companies. But uh, one thing that I find that's funny often when talking about like being a startup, and now that we you know have funding and have users and have grown and we have a team, we have people ask like, Do you have an office? Like for some reason that's like a, a moment for them of like, Wow, it's real. Um, so as a startup with an office, I think one of the um, uh, things that surprises people is that. Like how many things are still broken completely, and fire drills and chaos, and I think, and, and, and I think each time like it's a new round of funding or a new milestone as a business that we achieve, we think like okay, cool, like, now it's going to slow down. Now it's now it's like we're that next thing. We have like bigger office or whatever the you know um, whatever that milestone might be. But I think the realization that like things are always broken on fire. And when it really hit home for me was when um, was when uh, Brian Chesky who's the CEO of Airbnb was he. They were in a Y Combinator company, so we had the privilege of meeting him and Joe Gebbia, his co-founder, and uh, for lunch we were chatting with him about their business and saying, like, gosh, like, there's so many things we want to learn from you about where you are and, like, you know, how do you do it? What are your tips of trade? And he was like, everything's on fire all the time. This is crazy scary. We have no idea what we're doing. Um, and so I think that's what made me realize, one, maybe to, like, buckle up and go to marathon pace on a sprint because this is just my life now, apparently. Um, but, uh, but I think that surprises people, the idea of like we're still just putting out fires, plugging holes, we have this very leaky bucket where it's just a constant action of plugging holes as new holes form um, and, and growing and learning that way. So I guess that's the fun part.
1: Everything's on fire. That is
3: a good <laughs> it, It's funny that they ask you if you have an office because the question that I get asked is when is the last time you laughed at work? which is so sad that people think that we're, we're that joyless of, of an industry. But uh, yeah, no, we, we actually have a lot of fun at work and I, I get pretty much all my social interaction that I need there, like... In
1: addition to your 945 calls with global companies. Yeah, yeah well,
3: that's when you're on mute and you're texting with your, with your coworkers about what's happening, and that part you can laugh about. <laughs> Thank
4: God for mute. <laughs> yeah, I, I was
3: not on mute last week while working on a call and and I had the team texting and saying, You're not on mute, you're not on mute. <laughs> it's, like,
2: it's, it's kind of like you
4: didn't do your homework in high school. That's the that's new version. You're accidentally not on
1: mute. <laughs> uh, you didn't answer that one. What's the most surprising thing about your job and your, your position? Um,
4: is
0: everything
1: on fire in the mattress you know, business too? You know, it, it's, <laughs> it's on fire. Other than the mattresses? Yeah, all the
4: mattresses are on fire. All that would the be a problem. <laughs> that would be a problem. We've never had a literal fire build that big. Um, you know, I think it, what's surprising is just um, at the end of the day, the mattress. I think when my when I talk to my mom, she thinks of like, so tell me about the inch in height of that one <laughs> mattress that you know. my mom. I think like I like look and sleep on every single one of our beds. Now we have a huge company that does all sorts of different things. and People doing all sorts of, and they're specialized in these very different ways. And we're not all just like at the master story or talking to people. So I think that's that's uh, that's surprising. I think for others, um, what's been surprising uh, for for me um, is just been actually to be honest, we started off really really uh, you know in a small way bootstrapped to, to where we are, we had our first you know, big round of funding was, was actually this past year, um, and, and just the, the, the way the company has evolved um, from, a, from a really like an internet marketing type of company into a, in a brand um, that, that, that's actually going to go into, into physical retail, I think it's been, uh, it's been just such a, an interesting ride to watch. And, and, and weirdly kind of it's felt unnatural and natural at the same time.
0: Hmm.
1: All right, I'm getting the five-minute warning before we move to questions, so I'm gonna ask the final one knowing that we'll probably take a hot minute on this one. Looking back, what advice would you give your younger self in your career path?
4: Uh, Not to fail 10 times, like three or four is pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I I think that, like I I would say what I was saying earlier, there's just so much out there um, that you can piggyback off and leverage. I remember when we were first starting, uh, there was this random, I think it was actually a Y Combinator piece, where they they published like 300 tools you could use, and I mean, it was like my birthday for a hundred years. So, I mean, just, whoa, I've been wasting so much time, like the most productive three weeks of my life after, after I got that email. Um, so there's just so much you can use that's out there. You don't have to build the world yourself, there's just, it, 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 it's, yeah, the
1: world's changed that way. Yeah, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. Yeah.
3: So I would say the advice I'd probably give myself is to not try to plan what the future is going to be. And I I think that it's it's hard for me because i, I like to know what's happening and plan. Like I pack for a trip two weeks in advance, things like this. But in general, it's, it's sort of been the spirit of just embracing what challenges might come my way or what opportunities happen when I feel like I'm starting to stagnate. And I think that's when I have made the moves that I have in order to keep learning and growing. The other thing I would say too is I, if I was specifically talking to myself and not the broader group, I would give myself the advice that I should have worked abroad earlier in my career because now I have two little kids and I think it's pretty difficult to imagine us uprooting and moving um, outside of the US at this point I think I
2: probably would have told myself to, to take things a little bit less seriously or like to not take myself too seriously but I'll, I'll make it personal um, and I think that really hit home for me a couple of times once was like early on building the startup and and um, and, and speaking to, I forget who, I should remember who this was. This was sort of a turning point for me. I was talking about being stressed out, building a business, and working these long hours, and wasn't sure if we were going to fail, et cetera. And I was like, yeah, I'm just so stressed. Like, and someone, again, I I remember who it was, someone was like, you're not a doctor. Like, what where are the stakes here? If you, if you fail, okay, like, uh, uh, and, and in this setting, I'm also not a teacher, right? Like, with high stakes. Um, uh, which I thought for me was like this, this incredible realization of, <laughs> It's not actually the end of the world to, to fail at something, or to, to, for it to not work. And so I think I started taking myself a little bit less seriously, and then by extension it made it a lot easier to kind of go with the flow take major risks. So.
1: so you're not a doctor and everything's yeah. on
2: fire. Right, yeah, so don't come to me for anything, I'm not a doctor.
3: <laughs> I've learned I think a lot. I will say is, is, we always say, we're not saving lives, but we are changing them. So that way you still can feel like you're making a difference. yes, yes. you are. Yeah,
1: very PR, I love that yeah, right. Okay, we have like five minutes for questions. I know we have a very inquisitive group here. So who's gonna be first? I shall come out to the crowd.
3: Definitely Ooh. my mom, Katie Randhurt. I don't know your new. I can't say your name very last name. It's complicated. It's very complicated. Yes. Hi guys. I'll just sit, this is fine. Um, so my question is primarily for Ricky. So I work in the retail automotive industry and it's extremely, antiquated in a lot of ways, but there are some major disruptors coming into our industry right now, like Carvana, where you can order a car online and have it delivered to your house. Don't do it, go to Riker. Um, <laughs> but we're looking at which ways we can kind of break into that. So as somebody who was a disruptor, is a disruptor in an industry where people usually go and lay on a mattress and like to see how it feels, what advice would you give to somebody who's trying to disrupt an industry?
4: Um, so I, any of your- yeah, I think you know, without getting too much into like, super detailed stuff, I think you know, it really comes down to converting the customer, as you know, and it comes down to acquiring a customer and then reselling to a customer. Um, so you know, how, do you, how do you make that as seamless as possible? So are there digital ways to bring someone who's bought a car from you to, to upsell them over, over a period of time, I think, as a, as a way to increase revenue? Um, you know, in terms of acquiring a customer, and obviously, I'm sure you've thought through a number of ways to do that, and then converting a customer. How, how do you make how do you make it so the transaction happens as easy as possible? So it doesn't take you know a week or two to or to, to cross shop, and it doesn't take you know four or five hours to sit there, and, and maybe they'll come back, and maybe it's at 9 p.m. at night. You know, I don't know. It's not my industry, but I'm sure those are the kind of three things I always focus on: conversion, acquisition, and
1: retention. And I believe the record company just got top place to work. Yes, so that's always great. They have good people and a good reputation, so that definitely helps. Or versus Doc, I'm always plugging you. All right. Oh, we got a question back here.
3: Hi, Morgan Harper, class of 2001. Uh, So my question actually goes for Ryan, and I'm wondering about which types of companies are very excited about job well services? Is it mostly a coastal thing?
2: Are there a lot of Western companies that are taking up on how to diversify their pipeline of candidates? I appreciate the question. Quickly to, to Katie, this maybe is less relevant for your specific space, but just in terms of like disrupting, I think what people find surprising, like we left Goldman on like a Tuesday, put suits on for the first time, and came back to them on a Thursday, and just because we were a startup solving something, they're like, oh, startup, innovation, like we'll do this. So I think it's, it's, people, it's funny that they agree to which just, again, maybe not relevant in this case, given the industry is, uh, is established. But the extent to which just putting like the startup and data and innovation hat on things suddenly resonates with the, with legacy. But, um, uh, in terms of like where our uh, presence is, our candidate population pretty much mirrors that that where diverse talent is congregated in the country. So it largely reflects yes, yes, to the coasts. We probably over index uh, Silicon Valley just because of, there aren't, unfortunately, too many people of color there, but there are lots of opportunities and, and, um, and exciting roles there. But we certainly have jobs all, uh, and employers all throughout the country who are looking to diversify. And so um, I guess the commonality of the companies that we work with is they're not doing this for the feel good PR checkbox. They're doing it because from the C suite down, they fundamentally believe that they'll have a difficult time competing and that they'll be out innovated if they don't treat diversity like any other investment they would make across their business. And so as long as you change, and we've said no to companies certainly. Um, uh, large companies that would have, it would have been accretive certainly to our revenue, but where it didn't make sense because they had the wrong motivations. Geographically, if you're in the US, as long as you, um, again, want diversity to be part of moving the bottom line and moving your company forward, we'll uh, partner and we have candidates who'd be excited to, to, to work there. Good question, good answer. I think we
1: have time to like, one maybe two more. Oh, I one right here.
0: Hi, I'm Dave English, class of 1961, and I would uh, direct this to Rachel. Uh, I'm a veteran of the banking industry, and I had a gentleman in my class by the name of John McCoy that went from City National <laughs> Bank to uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. What nations? are the most sophisticated in banking in the world?
3: Probably... It's probably US, UK, and Germany. And UK has been pretty interesting lately. There have been a lot of challenger banks there, and the challenger banks in the UK have actually gotten about 30% of the retail deposits. So. Not just the interest, not just the kind of the cachet of the names, but they are actually starting to make a lot of traction. And then those challenger banks are getting licenses in other nations, including the U.S. So um, I think they're doing some pretty great stuff there. Oh, Chelsea.
2: I'm Vic Thorne. I'm class of '92. I have two young students here, and uh, I'm a trustee and very proud to see the group here. And I'm totally amazed by your not just your experiences and accomplishments, but everything that you've had to say. Just really beautiful. I have a question. You're young alums, and you've achieved so much, and we've talked a lot about some really remarkable things. But you have a long road ahead of you. So, what's your future look like and where do you see your personal development and, and success for you personally? Just be short because everything's on fire. You. And you have one minute to answer the question. No, I, I think um, I, I will acknowledge that uh, fr- from like a personal fulfillment perspective or a business fulfillment perspective, it feels like the a treadmill because of things that you're working towards. Once you get there, there's like no party, no celebration. It's just like, cool, here's this next thing. And so I think, especially being in New York and i this resonates with you, that can be a little bit dangerous. It feels like a treadmill on 15% incline. Um, but, but I think for us, it's just, if we can keep bringing it back to the story I mentioned earlier and to the individual experiences and stories, we're totally happy with any level of like, quote unquote, success as a business that we achieve. Um, and, and we're trying to focus less on what is the end outcome, what is like the next thing, and, and kind of just enjoy the enjoy the ride. Uh, as as cliche as that might be, because I think otherwise we uh, it, it's quick to get lost, and, and sort of always want to set these kind of new new goals as a business and person. At least that's my philosophy. I think for for work wise at City right now. Um,
3: I would love to see us actually reinvent what banking is and what it looks like and in the next couple years launch something that is completely competitive, but also has our differentiating factors that are coming to the forefront, which is global scale and massive customer base already and people who understand the industry and things like that. Um, I still think that there's a lot that can be done and a lot that we need to do to stand out and, and kind of win in the space that's still very much in, in a changing um, time. I think personally, it's hard to say what I think the road ahead it looks like. I am trying to continue to, as long as I'm working for someone who I respect and who I think is really smart and that I'm learning from, I think that's what matters to me personally. Um, and When that's not the case, then that's when I will you know, reevaluate um, but in terms of industries, I also think it's really fascinating what's going to happen in healthcare and what's already started to happen because retail was about 10 years ago and the changes with that. Hospitality had big changes. There's so many different industries that have, that have been changing. Financial services very much now, but healthcare I think will be the next big one that will completely change for the, for the better.
4: Um, I actually switched my role, like I think I mentioned before, um, about five months ago just because I'd been doing um, and running you know, marketing from the inception from the first you know, Google and Facebook accounts all the way up to where we were um, about six months ago. and just wanted to switch just because I thought you know, the fun part of the business would be to... Or I just wanted to try a new challenge, so I thought product would be interesting, I thought retail store strategy would be interesting, I thought international expansion would be interesting, uh, so I switched my job. Uh, and I get to be a nerd about totally different things, and and I actually like it's kind of weird. I do end up like sneakily coming back and playing CMO, um, just sort of having secret side meetings by the water cooler. Like, so just tell me, how, you know, this past weekend on a new launch, like how much we spend? Blah blah blah. I still do that a little bit, and I try not to do too much of it. But um, so I, I, I have switched a little bit. Um, quite frankly, I, I love doing this, and I kind of want to do it again, and you know, if this company um, ends up, you know, and I end up leaving at some point, you know, I, I can't wait to go back and do an incubator and uh, fire away again. I love that time of life, and I think it's exciting.
1: Thank you all for your questions. That was amazing. Um, I think I'm supposed to turn it over to Lauren now.
0: Yeah, can we just give them a round of applause? personally thank everybody who came um, to sit in our panel. We had a lot of people travel and we weren't sure as a board if we could make that happen um, given this was only our third year and um, every single panelist said yes. Uh, So so that was really cool and um, we're really thankful. I will say Ryan disclosed that he's going to the Derby, so he had ulterior motives to come back to the Midwest. So I want to take a minute to also thank Sheila Troutner from the class of uh, 1998 and Mike Gross from the class of 1989 for providing refreshments for this evening, as well as Elizabeth Fox. from the class of 2006, who provided the beautiful flowers. Thank you very much for contributing to tonight's event. And this concludes the event, thank you all for coming.